Empty Set Entertainment presents Slay, created by Scott Sigler. This story is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, junkies. Not much new news this week. I'm still working away on Warpath, my next novel. I'm about 40,000 words into it. It's slated to be an 80,000-word novel. So maybe half done? There's really no way to tell, though. The story can get longer, which is what usually happens to me. The story could get shorter, which does happen sometimes. So let's just focus on Slay and get back into it. I think there's anywhere from five to seven episodes remaining in season one of Slay. Things are going to get real hectic, real, real quick. Let me get you caught up on the story so far. Then we're all going to go sacrifice a ne'er-do-well to ensure a pleasant summer. Previously on Slay. Ariella came to Lincoln's defense against Kalista, but Kalista's lawyer, Shocking Cock Khan, got the upper hand. If Lincoln wants to change his contract with Kalista and have her keep his son safe on the shelf, he must protect Kalista from deadly bounty hunters. But before Lincoln goes on the hunt for the Flechette sisters, Oleus Oakbeard, and Boss Hogg, he needs to put his affairs in order and find out what happened to his friend, Patrick Cantrell. Dante Oganov hated carpet rides. Carpets never felt solid, like a plane did, or even a griffin, although the latter always stank from their incessant farts. You eat raw yak meat, it's going to take a toll in your digestive system. But Dante's benefactor hadn't sent a plane or a griffin, he'd sent a carpet. And Dante sat his fat ass on it for the ride across Cordis. An ugly city from the ground, true. But from the air, the buildings gleamed and the rivers sparkled. The carpet carried him over Little Egypt, Little Acadia, the Umiad district, and finally, New Zungar, where some of Cordes' most wealthy and most powerful people lived. From packed-in buildings to spacious estates in the blink of an eye. Palaces, mansions, pagodas, and more, all surrounded by well-groomed lands likely teeming with protection traps, hungry watch monsters, and, of course, people with weapons. Someday, Dante would live in a place like this. Someday. The carpet angled toward a sprawling estate. The house was a palace. Dante didn't know architecture, but it looked Indian to him. Stretching out from the house, small rocks of different colors were laid out in the shapes of large magical symbols. But the carpet didn't take him to the house. It lowered him to a 10-meter-wide peace symbol near it, done with white stone atop cardinal red. In the center of that sprawling design sat two lawn chairs, one of them occupied by a man dressed like he was a robber baron from the American 1800s. The carpet touched down. The man in the chair nodded. Dante? Dante nodded back. Vestinian? Vestinian gestured to the open chair. Please, have a seat. Dante did, and quickly. This was a man of power. True power. Working with him was a risk, no doubt. But Vestinian 
was an on-ramp to levels of control Dante had only dreamed of, from being a bit player in Miami to the boss in Lumencia. Such an opportunity. And all because Joe had connected Dante with that kid. I'm concerned about my investment, Mr. Neen said. I appreciate you taking the time to bring me up to date. Vestinian was old school. Old, old, ancient school, really. No phones, no orbs. All conversations were done face to face. Vestinian went to no one. When he wanted you, he sent for you. Things are going well, Dante said. I'll make my move soon. Vestinian smoothed his narrow mustache. It gleamed with the same salt and pepper sheen as his well-coiffed hair. The man seemed to make a concerted effort to look like Clark Gable. What his real face was, Dante didn't know. Vestinian's threadwork was orders of magnitude beyond Dante's skills. I funded your operation for business reasons, of course, but also personal ones, Vestinian said. The boy is still alive. A statement. Not a question. Vestinian knew. Did Vestinian have connections in Lumencia? Was one of the bounty hunters secretly reporting back to him? All the hitters are hunting the boy, Dante said. I have a cockeye on the lookout for him, and also that asshole Franks. No sign of either. Well, I'm not surprised. Someone at Lincoln's level is adept enough to keep himself screened, and your hitters must be hunting for the boy when they're not prepping to remove Kalista, which leads me to believe they aren't all that focused on said hunting. No matter. They can find the boy when they finish with her. A relief to hear those words. Taking out the boy had been part of the deal. Being able to kick that can down the road a bit helped Dante immensely. I understand, Dante said. Vestinian reached inside his suit jacket came out with a rectangular plastic container. The thin sheet of plastic sealed across the top was inked with a blue Ritz Crackers logo. I recently acquired three cases of these, Vestinian said. Horribly expensive. Very rare. Very nice. Very smooth. He peeled off the thin plastic top, paused to lick free a bit of yellow cheese, or whatever it was that passed for cheese here, that stuck to it. A tiny smear clung to Vestinian's mustache. He tossed the now-curled-up plastic under his chair, then used the thin red plastic rectangle inside to scoop up some of the orange goo. He set the package on his lap, removed one of the thin crackers, and spread the stuff on top. The cracker broke slightly under the mild pressure. Confound it, Vestinian said, although he sounded anything but annoyed. There's a trick to it, you see, at which I'm often unsuccessful. But in life, good things often arrive damaged. He held up the cracker. Would you like one? This batch is from 1997. A good year. The weird old wizard wanted to share antique processed food. Dante would rather lick the ass end of a cockatrice. Thank you, but I am on diet. Doc said my cholesterol is too high. Vestinian shrugged, popped the entire cracker into his mouth. He chewed slowly, his eyes narrowing in pleasure. Now, that is money well spent, he said. You know, 
They still make a version of this treat, but it's simply not the same. A lot of people tell me the taste really comes from the plastic stick that activates the true flavor of the fromage. But thanks to the hippie libtar tree huggers in the unenlightened realm, we can't have nice things like disposable single-use plastic cheese spreading sticks. Dante didn't care about politics or the rants of this old man. It's a real shame, he said. Vestinian took another cracker out of the plastic tray. You've certainly taken your time, Dante. He slowly spread cheese on the cracker, enjoying the process. I am a patient man, but I also believe in deadlines. If you don't set goals, you get nothing done. When are you going to finish this Callista business? Dante knew he was on thin ice. He had taken Vestinian's money. If he didn't get the job done, Vestinian would make an example of him. Three days, Dante said. The hills are making sure they know the, uh, the, uh, the lay of the land. Vestinian raised the red plastic strip to his mouth, licked a smear of cheese from it. Hmm, make it two days, he said. As they say, Dante, if you play with it too long, it will fall off. The carpet will take you wherever you need to go. Might I suggest a transit station so you can get back to your associates and proceed with the assigned task? Dante hopped out of the lawn chair, his feet crunching on the loose white stone. I won't let you down, he said. He stepped onto the carpet and he sat. Vestinian closed one eye, squinted at the red plastic stick as if it were some priceless object. I hope not, he said. I certainly hope not. The carpet rose. Totem Plaza, Dante said. The red carpet sliced through the sky. Two days. Dante had two days to take out Callista. If he didn't, it would be his soul that Vestinian spread on a cracker. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I say, I say, it's called Nurple. I think it would help you boys out some. We gotta have a talk before you take it, though. Butch was in the passenger seat, Money Monday in the driver's seat. They were parked in the 7-Eleven parking lot, talking to Boss Hogg on a call routed through the Chrysler 300 sound system. I had that strain once, Butch said. Wasn't as good as Pineapple Express or garlic butter, but it wasn't bad. There was a pause. Butch glanced at Money. Money shrugged. Ah, garlic butter, Hogg said. What exactly is that? It's weed, my man, Monday said. High-grade ganch. Butch held up a hand. He didn't want money doing the talking. Oh, I say, I say, you're referring to pot, Hogg said. Giggle smoke, Mary Warner, goof butts, am I right? Money fought back a laugh. He mouthed the words, giggle smoke, then bit his finger to keep his laughter in check. His shoulders shook. Butch didn't think any of this was funny. He had never heard those nicknames for weed. That's right, he said. You got it. Like I said, I tried Purple Nurple. I say, I say, I'm talking about a completely different substance altogether. When we get to the point of going to see our mutual friend, the stuff I will provide will help you get the job done. Now, is there any sign of him yet? Not yet, Butch said but we're looking. Good, good, good. Well, keep me informed. Hogg hung up. Money wiped a tear from his eye. That motherfucker is crazy, he said. Goofbutts sounds like something they'd call chronic a hundred years ago. How old do you think that cracker really is? Hogg looked 30, maybe. Don't know, Butch said. And what the fuck is he doing anyway? We the only ones looking for Billy and he wants half the contract. It's bullshit, man. We tune that bitch up, we should get 75%. Money was only thinking short term. That was fine. Money wasn't the thinker. Butch was. Billy was the price of the ticket to ride the ride. What came after Billy was what really mattered. But Money was right about one thing. It did feel odd. Hogg wanted half the 40 large, but he didn't seem that invested in hunting Little B down. Maybe he felt he didn't have to, because Butch was all over the motherfucker. Or maybe Hogg had basically outsourced the hit to Butch and was busy with other business in Lumencia. Did that matter? Not really. Butch was just moving up from AAA ball to AA. Hogg was already in the show. Butch had to earn his way up. 
That started with Lil B, which suited Butch just fine. Somehow, that tiny, scrawny motherfucker had taken out Big Heck. Taken him out and made sure the body wasn't found. So where was the body of Butch's friend now? Rotting in a sewer? Rats and flies feeding on his decomposing flesh? Maybe chopped up and buried out on the marsh? Stuffed in a barrel with acid, like in the movies? Disrespect. That was the word for it. Billy could have left Hack's body where it was, so it could be recovered. So Hack's moms could see his face one last time. Disrespect on a grand level. Lil B was going to pay. He was going to pay dearly. Cantrell and Cantrell's office was in Olmeckville. Not one of Cordes's richer neighborhoods, but not one of the poorest either. Most buildings on the street were mixed-use stone ziggurats. Businesses on the ground floor and who knew what on the floors above. The door to the office was closed. Cantrell and Cantrell painted across the top in gold letters trimmed with black. Certified patchwork legal representatives beneath the name. And below that, a temporarily closed sign hung from a nail still bright where the hammer had hit it. Lincoln knocked. No answer. Dylan, open up. Still no answer. Lincoln leaned closer to the door. If you don't open this door, I will kick it down to see if you're in there. And if you are, I'm going to be even angrier than I already am. And here's an important clue. I'm already pretty fucking angry. A hushed pause. Then Lincoln heard someone moving around inside. He was going to beat Dylan Cantrell's ass. Did the idiot think he could escape Lincoln's wrath? How could Dylan throw away their friendship on a little bit of gold? Lincoln heard the sizzle of a magical lock. Then the door swung inward. It was dark inside. Some of the city's perpetual twilight filtered through, though, showed Dylan. His face turned away. Dylan walked deeper into the office. He left the door open. That was as much of an invite as Lincoln was going to get. Lincoln stepped in, closed the door behind him. Where is my gold, motherfucker? Dylan dropped heavily into a desk chair. He still wouldn't look Lincoln's way. It's gone, he said. I failed you. Then you better unfail me. Lincoln walked to Dylan's chair. I need that gold. Look at me. Lincoln whipped the chair around. Dylan had already taken a beating, it seemed. The skin around his eyes was a sickly yellow, spotted with patches of dark purple and blotchy red. A deep cut lined his bottom lip. A bruise on his forehead looked like someone teed off on him with a five iron. What the fuck happened to you? Dylan looked down. I got robbed. Sort of. Someone robs you when you're not home, Lincoln said. When someone beats your hide like this, it's called a mugging. You know who it was? Dylan said nothing. If you got jumped, it's not your fault, Lincoln said. Why didn't you call me? You could have sent a messenger or something at least. 
Dylan closed his bruised eyes and looked away. I was embarrassed, humiliated. You asked me to do you a favor and well, I lost your money. This is a goddamn law firm, Lincoln said. You're fucking lawyers. Lawyers have fucking money. You couldn't get some of your own gold to Bengals to cover me? Where are your parents? Dylan put his elbows on his knees, rested his face in his hands. They're on vacation, he said, for six months. They trusted me to run things. I couldn't call them. There's these guys who are shaking me down. They came after my parents left, said I had to pay them protection money. I figured I could do that until my parents got back, and, well, then they'd deal with it. Better to be out some money than to have my parents come back to a burned-out office, you know? These guys took all the money I had, everything in my place, too. I'm so sorry, Link. They happened to come when I got back from your place. I had your gold on me. I tried to stop them from taking it, and... He lifted his hand, gestured to his face. That's when this happened. Lincoln's anger didn't fade so much as it shifted targets. From Dylan to whoever had hurt Dylan. You're going to tell me who did this to you? Why? So you can go and kill them? Maybe, Lincoln said. Depends on my mood. You'll just make more problems for me. And for Cantrell and Cantrell. I'm in enough trouble with my parents as it is. Lincoln reached toward another desk, Dylan's mother's desk maybe, and pulled over that chair. He sat down, leaned closer to Dylan. Right now, my problems outweigh yours, Lincoln said. If I don't pay bingles today, that little monster is going to come after me. I already have enough people coming after me, Dylan. You're going to tell me who did this to you. I am beating someone's ass today. I'd rather it be theirs than yours. Dylan looked up, finally, shame in his bruised eyes. So I got the shit kicked out of me, and if I don't tell you who did it, I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me again, but by you? Of course, that's what Lincoln had been insinuating, but to hear it out of Dylan's mouth made the reality of it hit home. Lincoln knew that he was a dumpster fire of a friend. He put a hand on Lincoln's shoulder. Tell me who did this. If they took your money and my gold, they probably have more of the same. And I need it right now. Dylan sniffed, nodded. All right. The guy's name is Artie. He is a tapestry shop three blocks up the street from here, the corner of Rubber Tree Lane and Stone Block Boulevard. The place is called... Tapestry travesty. Three blocks. Lincoln stood. This Sardi have people working for him? Yeah, Dylan said. A couple of really big guys. One has a face tat. He's the one who punched me several times. Now Lincoln knew which one had put their hands on his friend. That was good information to have. You stay here, he said. I'm going to go have a little chat with these guys and see if I can educate them as to the error of their ways. You have been listening to Slay, created and read by Scott Sigler. 
Copyright 2023, Empty Set Entertainment. For more information on the author and more books, visit scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Superweapon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.